A little public service announcement to you all. Dear White Women supports the Department of Health and Human Services COVID-19 education campaign, We Can Do This, efforts to increase education and awareness about COVID-19 vaccines. Whether due to language barriers or lack of access to healthcare, many Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders face unique challenges to getting accurate vaccine information. We hope that amplifying these resources, especially in other languages, will help reach and protect our most vulnerable communities. Please visit vaccines.gov for more information. So when's the last time you had a conversation with someone of Asian descent? And not just like a passing work-related transactional conversation or a hello while crossing paths while picking up kids, but a conversation where you saw them as a product of their history and experiences and asked them something perhaps more sensitive and interesting than where are you from? Something about their goals, their passions, and how their identities may have played into shaping who they are because of the assumptions of white Americans who perpetually think that Asian people are some sort of stereotype. Jerry Wan, who's our guest today, has a podcast that was not only featured by Apple Podcasts at the top of the list of podcasts to listen for for Asian American Pacific Islander Month this May, but his podcast growth has more than quadrupled since the latest slew of anti-Asian hate. And he's used it as an opportunity for personal and professional growth to get more narratives of the often under-celebrated Asian community in America out into the world. So excited to get started. So welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. And interestingly, just so you know, Dear White Women is also a show that many people have assumptions about when they hear that name until they realize that we are biracial, Japanese and white hosts with black families and white families and Asian families and a whole lot of history, psychology and heartland humanity behind our work. All right, Jerry, we are so freaking excited to have you on this show with us. Jerry, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Jerry Wan. Foremost, I am a father of two, of two little tiny people. Our son is four, our daughter is two, and I am married to my wife and live out here in California. My identity evolved from being Korean to Korean-American, and I added Asian-American as, as a more broad identity, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But, you know, yeah, those are my primary identities to feed said tiny people. We make podcasts, we speak at companies, we do a whole lot of other things, primarily anchored around now sharing my story and other Asian American narratives that have often been so far so silenced in the American media landscape, whether it is podcast or general media. So really happy to be here. We're so excited to have you. You know, we found your show because you also had a similar podcast title to ours. Your illustrious show is called Dear Asian Americans. And, you know, while we went with a target audience of Dear White Women, you really are almost creating a platform as a love letter both to offer the information that you get from fellow Asian Americans to your children as a legacy, but also to really honor and amplify, even though we've totally overused that word of amplifying people's voices, like amplifying voices of fellow Asian people living in America. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the show name to all the dear shows out there. I know I don't fit the demographic, but if dear media is listening and they want to put some commas in my pocket, I'd be more than happy to switch out my ho- or myself to a, a female voice. But you know, I think the reason I named the show this way, and I have to give a nod to my friend Flo Noel from Business School, who had a, not a podcast, but an email newsletter, sort of a community called Dear Black Woman. And, you know, her whole thing was that it is a forest bias effort to share the stories that don't often get shared otherwise. And so before there was the Dear's Americans podcast, there was a 
half-assed attempt at an Instagram campaign in 2019. And even before that, there were months and months of me swearing up and down that I'm going to do something. And my excuse in my block was that I couldn't find a damn name. And so when I found this name and the dot-com was available and the Instagram and all this other stuff, everything except Twitter, because they have a 15-character cap, you know, it was like, holy crap, we got to do it. But it really is in the form of, like you said, Sarah, a love letter where you know, we don't often talk to each other. We don't share. There's a lot of culturally trained or culturally expected silent suffering or, uh, you know, the storytelling almost is equivalent to burdening somebody else with your story or, you know, and so it's complex. You know, there are many, many different types of Asians, Asian Americans and the way that we identify. But anyway, it's been fun. It's been a little bit over a year and it's evolving into other crazy things happening in my life. So yeah, I got to be honest. I don't know if other people know, but when y'all reached out, I was like, I don't want to go on a white woman show. And then they're like, no, but we're also Asian too. I was like, oh yes, hell yeah. Because, you know, different demographic. Sorry if you're just a regular white person listening. Please, <laughs> please keep listening. Don't turn us off. because I got some stuff for you. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you just said that about, you know, that we're also Asian because one of the things Misasha pointed out in a webinar that you listened to this morning was this idea of, you know, for so long, we introduced ourselves as half Japanese, half white. And it was this idea of eliminating half. We are both white and Japanese as opposed to half of anything. Yeah. Well, and you know, something else at that webinar made me think about and something that Jerry, you just said was, has been, I've heard it so many times now recently, especially from Asian women saying like, I have not told my story before. I have not wanted to be that burden. I was taught very early on that I wasn't going to be a burden. And part of that burdening was talking about what I was going through. But in everything that has been coming up, especially with regards to anti-Asian hate and violence, those stories that I didn't tell are now stories that I want to find the voice to tell. And particularly for my kids, right? I think that has also been a very large factor, especially among the Asian moms that I've talked to, that they want it to be different for their kids, right? And that there is power in our voices. I think, and I, people who look like me are the problem, so I'm going to take it. But when we often talk about communities revolving around Asian Americans or Asians, even generally speaking, it's always like two Chinese and one Korean dude that just owned the narrative of what in America or Asian means. And I think we have to continue to remind ourselves and challenge that narrative because it's not, you know, there are, you know, there's 30 plus countries that represent, you know, some Asians forget that, you know, Indians in the subcontinent identify as Asian. Technically, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea is technically Asia. And so when we talk about Central Asia, when we talk about West Asia, those people, if they want to, should be included in the conversation. Now, I, you know, we all have friends who, you know, are either Persian or, you know, Armenian, and they say, hey, do you identify as Asian? And they say no. But sometimes when it comes to demographic forms, they check the box. And then we're also talking about Mary's folks. We're also talking about friends who are adopted, who you know, have a very uniquely different Asian American experience than I do, but we have to be inclusive at all. And, you know, I'm not perfect at it and I get called out for it plenty, but, you know, I think it's just something that if you want to create narrative or stories for people that you have to be as open and as inviting as you can, fully recognizing that it is not my place to tell anybody else's story than mine. And so, you know, I think you're right. And I think this whole time, I particularly in the concept of being early immigrants, because I was born in Korea, came here when I was eight. It is still self-identity, self-adding of you're a guest who, who you know, be humble, be gracious as, as a guest and don't take up too much space. You're still in 
their country. But somewhere between the first and second generation, there is this shift of audacity to believe that we belong and that we can take up space, which is a very American thing. You know, this tough, like, I belong here sort of mindset that we adopt. And I hope, you know, shows like this, conversations like this between us and other friends, and yes, in the shadows of really ugly events and, you know, people who have had uh, their lives lost and attacked and other things. And uh, for me, it's really galvanized me to do this even more because we finally have our moment. Uh, people are listening. And I want these conversations to be preventative and proactive, not reactive to some of the ugliness, ugliness that we see in the world too far. That's so true. And I love that we're right now in going to be heading into, and by the time this is out, the month, the bonus month that we get to talk about Asian issues in particular. But, you know, one thing I thought about when you were mentioning all of the different countries, right? So many people, when we talk about Asians, are so used to even maybe talking about the East Asians, like you said, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, or, you know, lumping assumptions about what the Asian experience is, which often when we talk about East Asians is also closely aligned with the model minority myth. And we will, by the time this is out, have just done an episode on why that's so harmful, historically speaking. But what for you does, you know, and, and I want to also acknowledge that, yes, you're doing all of this work supporting Asian American voices now, but you've come from this long background in corporate. And I would love to really talk about your experience in that world too, both personally and then also, you know, from a, your observations from a corporate standpoint. But what does that model minority myth mean to you personally? I think it's a scam. To be honest with you, I think it was a very nice way for us to fall into the system that would benefit the people who always had the, I don't know, the, the compounded and institutional benefit and advantage in this country. So the model minority myth, I think, gives us the illusion in the Asian American community that we can actually achieve uh, success at the same rate and same level and achieve social status and all these things that privileged white people in this country have enjoyed. And I think it's been historically used as quote unquote evidence to use against other people of color, particularly the black and brown folks who have systemic and historic disadvantage in this country to say, hey, if those Asians can earn their way out, can study their way out in one generation, go from poverty, from refugee status all the way out, why can't you? And that's also then set some really, really messed up expectations of us as a community as a whole to say, hey, why aren't you doing enough, right? All these, that's the bar, right? Like, and, and again, I recognize the privilege that the three of us sit here with, right? The schools that we went to and the opportunities that we've had, but that's not the case for everybody. And I think the best way, particularly as those exact same privileged people who understand science and data is to go into the world of data disaggregation. The best thing to do, and I advocate for this for black folks too, right? Because a Nigerian American immigrant who moved here 20 years ago is not the same person, nor do they have the same sort of opportunities or background as somebody who's a descendant of a slave in America for the last 300 years. And so, you know, if you look at the data of earning and of academics, even Chinese, Indian, and then the East Asian countries, Taiwanese, Korea, we far exceed the academic average. We far exceed the job average or the financial average. And then so people like to look at us and saying like, y'all are doing fine, stop complaining. In fact, I'm sure for this particular audience, everybody cares about pay equity as women. And I do too. But I have a very big problem with the way that we talk about gender-based pay equity in this country because the goddamn chart that always gets shown says white man, $1, white woman, 80 something cents, black and brown woman, 60 something cents. But then Asian women make 90 cents on the dollar and we get the, oh, woo, you know, Asian women don't need our help. They're doing just fine. 
so much better than a white woman, right? And so we get excluded out of the conversation, almost demonized, right? As if we're taking something away. Even if we wanted to argue that, we still have the 10 cents to make up to get to white men, which is gargantuan. But if you look and go into that data, yes, in fact, Chinese, Indian women make a lot of money in this country, more than the average white man. But if you look all the way down, you're talking about folks from Burma and from you know, the, the smaller countries down there, Bhutan and, and Nepal, they're making like 54 cents in the dollar. And what if that was a narrative? How would we look at even inter-Asian community-wise? How would we look at that? And then here's a quick history lesson. And this is not like an actual history lesson, but how did certain types of Asians immigrate here? Under what circumstance? How did the gracious white U.S. government of ye decades ago grant access to certain Asians, the good Asians, to come and take over the jobs and the academic opportunities and the graduate school visas that Americans couldn't fill? All STEM, right? Oh, yeah, that was the first bucket of people who were allowed over, like in the 1900s. Like that's new. Exactly. Correct. So who got to come here? And then if you look at the groups that are even more marginalized, they're all refugees post-war, post-genocide, because we can even go into the fact that America intervened themselves into the war. So they had to take the refugees in because that was a part of the deal. And so those folks who were only here because they were fine and dandy, and then America's got themselves in yet another foreign conflict, had to find a way out. So they were literally shipped with nothing and put them into you know, resettlement camps or whatever you call them, with nothing to go off of, with no support and with no social systems here. And then they're the ones that are doing all the, you know, the menial jobs, the jobs, the unspeakable jobs, the undocumented jobs, and are we taking care of them? When both cases, when both Atlanta and Indianapolis happened, and I'm still pissed that Indianapolis wasn't as widely talked about even within the Asian American community. Why? And so there's a number of people, I think the majority, if you count at all, about half of the people that were murdered were women in their 60s and 70s who worked at either massage places or at a FedEx processing facility. Why do our grandparents have to work there at that age? What failed them? And you want to tell me that's the model minority? It's not. And so, you know, I get very fired up about this because I think I have also been... I had to unlearn a lot of stuff growing up. So, you know, full disclosure, my dad's a doctor. My wife's a pharmacist. I have my MBA. Like I am privileged, right? And I am not where I want to be professionally or financially, but I understand that my opportunities, I don't have as many obstacles as some of my other friends. But when we look at the entire thing and we're fighting for Asian America, and we're advocating for our voice, like you have to take everything out. You can't just pick and choose, right? So I hope we go away from it. But, you know, the other thing, too, is like to dispel the model minority myth, we shouldn't just parade around like uneducated, poor people to say like, see, we're not all rich. That's not the right thing to do either. You know, so anyway, it is a complex thing. You know, I love talking about it. That's actually what I talk to when we go to companies and schools and talk about this stuff. And everybody's eyes just like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And it's like, of course you did. You didn't know. They don't want you to know this. But yeah, the government, we do not teach this in schools. It is not taught. I mean, we just talked about that on the show, too. We need to be revamping our curriculum and really including the true history of not Asians like Confucius in China, but like, let's talk about the history and the influence that people of Asian descent have had in our country, too, because there's been a lot that we have not been taught. Yeah. Or stopping at the immigration story, right? Because I think that the immigration story is important. And it is so, as we've been talking about, so unique, right? And different for each group. But a lot of our Asian American history stops there. 
I think when we stop there, it tells a narrative that this country is so great. Look at all these people coming here for a better opportunity because their home country sucked. Look how we saved you because you were a you were given up and we had to adopt you. Like this white savior narrative is built into even our curriculum. And of course, why wouldn't you? And and I think that's the thing that I think sometimes people forget. You know, countries, America and otherwise, you're there to serve your own need. And so you're going to tell the story that benefits your perspective. Nobody's going to sit there and want to admit to all the nasty things that they did. So I I get that. But the problem with America is that that's not the principles on which it was founded, right? So if we're talking about like I don't know, ancient Asian countries or I don't know European countries, like I get that a little bit. But I think particularly in America, like the people who found this country literally jumped on boats and said, "F this place, we're going to create a better place," and then came here. And it's not those same people, but their descendants ended up creating even a worse place for other people. Because if you were marginalized, would you not want to create a place where people like you suffer less in the future? And I think they created a place where they said, "Oh shit, we got ours now, so screw everybody else." It is mind-boggling the hypocrisy to me of people who are descendants of immigrants saying we should not take immigrants into our country. It's like it's the same though as. You know, in the research we've been doing, Misasha, lately about the same sort of a little more elderly white men who were benefits of all of the systems of social support that we offered in the way of the GI Bill and everything else, turning around now and being like, no, anybody who gets social support from the government, you know, are, are relying on handouts. They're not worthy when they were themselves beneficiaries of governmental things that supported them. It's we need to have a longer view and actually appreciate more broadly. What has brought each of us to this place and where we are, and offer that same human empathy and kindness and perspective and opportunity that we ourselves were given. So, yeah, I don't know. That is up to each of us to be able to put ourselves in position of influence to make those changes. I think. I think it's funny, and I don't mean to be a dick, but like, if you're listening to this, and you know, you you are, you just consider yourself American. Like, I challenge you to chase your genealogy back because you're probably like a, you know, a twelfth or fifteenth generation immigrant too. And at what generation do you drop the immigrant name, right? Like I was technically I'm first because I was born in Korea, right? So I mean, in, in Korean culture, we call it the one and a half generation, the one point five, because I'm neither. But you know, it's weird because if you talk to you know, particularly from Hawaii, if you talk to a lot of Japanese American immigrants who've been here a hundred years, they still identify as fourth or fifth generation American. White people who come from Europe go through the same hundred year journey. And they don't say I'm a fifth generation German American. They just say I'm white. And so you know, it is the self identity is is really weird. And you know, but if you talk to certain white, they know exactly what their genetic makeup is, right? Because they say, you know, my mom, my grandfather from this part of the region, and and so you know, celebrate that culture too. But I think also it's really important that outside of you know the indigenous, the actual Native Americans here, everybody is an X generation immigrant or refugee or adoptee or whatever you want to call it. I'm just earlier in my immigration journey than you are. Or opposite, however you want to look at it, and so I, you know, looking at it like that, you know, just I've asked my white friends, like, so what generation immigrant are you? And they get all offended, like immigrant is a bad term. Like your people came here on a boat too. Just got to go a little bit deeper, a little bit further. So it's all perspective, I think. Hundred percent. I was just thinking about my kid was doing a. Sarah's heard this story like a million times, but like the project around national origin in schools, right? And you. You're supposed to, you know, put the flags of your family's countries, and you create this little paper doll thing of your, you know, your family's heritage, right? And so, 
every kid gets super excited about it. And for mine, we were like, okay, well on, you know, mommy's side, you're Scottish, you're Japanese, you're English. And then on, you know, your father's side, well, there was slavery. So we're not sure, you know, what countries they're from. But I think back to that and how proud people are of that immigrant heritage, right? In those moments or how proud kids are and how that has does not translate through to like the adult view of immigration and the strengths behind it. What do you guys think about those projects? Because I think they're actually extremely otherizing because I think when you, it comes from a privilege of not being adopted, not knowing, you know, because I think if you aren't like, say you're adopted, right? You don't know, you may not know. Because I have a lot of adoptee friends whose parents, as loving and as kind as they are, didn't teach their kids shit about being Korean or anything. Of course, pre-internet, it was a different era. But, you know, what if that kid says, no, like, my last name is Anderson and I am English. And like, no, you're not. You know, it's. I think some of those things that are very well-intentioned in terms of like, you know, let's learn about each other and from a diversity perspective. I, I think some of those things have an opposite effect, especially if teachers not handling certain questions or certain conversations with the nuance that they should be doing. I think you're right on the teacher role because I think that that is a big thing. But yes, like my, I had to go to my kid's second grade teacher and say like, look, you know, in our family, we have this hard stop, you know, in the civil war, we don't know who's coming from where we can say Africa, right. On my husband's side. So how are you going, are you going to be okay with saying like, because of slavery, you know, we can't go further back. And she was like, I am like, and so we were the way she handled that was really thoughtful, but I can't say that that would have been the case with all teachers or, and I would have felt very differently about that. So I completely appreciate your point about how that could be really othering for kids who don't have that, you know, sort of traditional with heavy air quotes ability to see that narrative and their identity that way. Well, and I wonder also what defines identity and belonging then, because I know a lot of people when I've sat in on some of those presentations with the kids and I hear, you know, an otherwise just white presenting family be like all the Germanic and I'm from Germany and France and all these countries. But how many of those cultural traits do these families have now? No, their cultural contribution was they brought a hamburger in because they're American is what they basically said. And it's like, okay, so is the purpose of it then, if it's to figure out where they belong, could we not focus, our kids school actually is doing a fantastic project where they're having people submit recipes that the kids enjoy from their cultural backgrounds. And so these are the lived experiences of people's history. And that might be a different way to look at it because if we're, if we're looking at the purpose we could manifest that project differently. If it's just to show that, hey, look, we're citizens of the world, maybe, but we're not really appreciating those cultures equally, you know, the way that Misasha, that all of us do, because we're so close to our nation of, you know, ethnic origin through our parents versus people, like I said, who's been here for hundreds of years and don't actually identify with or speak those languages or, or appreciate the culture of those. I think it's really funny because the same sort of, you know, descendants of European immigrants, now just say like, oh, you know, American is my culture. But then when they talk to everybody else, particularly Asian people, they assume that we're always going to be Asian in culture. You are like, this is literally, I mean, obviously it's a double standard. There's a lot of, you know, nuanced racism built into it, that the perpetual foreigner and this, this treatment of, of, of our people, but it's wild, right? Like, you know, why can't macaroni cheese be my kid's favorite food? Because he doesn't know he's Korean yet. Or, you know, he hasn't learned about his Korean identity as much as I want to teach him one of these days. You know, you know, it's additional burden, 
right? And I, we talk about this often, you know, my wife and I and other friends who are in the same boat, like there's additional layers of factors that go into our decision-making process, starting with where we live, what kind of schools we want to raise our kids in, what kind of neighborhoods we live in, who, who we want our kids to be friends with. You know, particularly, I think, you know, when you're single and young and you are generally motivated by economic opportunity in choosing where you want to work and live, there's so many other things that have to come into play when you have kids. And I think many immigrant parents just said, whatever the best school district is, I'm there. But I think our generation of parents are starting to find more nuance in where is the least racist place given my other criteria? Where is there enough diversity, but not so much that every kid in the classroom is Korean? Because I grew up in a place like that in America. But, I, you know, it's these are additional burdens that I think, you know, I would love for other parents and other folks to start to understand a little bit that there is a reason why, you know, cultural epicenters exist because there's comfort and safety. But we're also looking for other things. So, you know, I remember coming out of business school, you know, depending on who you talk to, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to apply for this office in Minneapolis or I'm going to go, you know, apply for this job in Tennessee somewhere. And I'm like, well, I'm not. Why would I? Like, why would I do that to myself, my wife, my kid? Like, why would I do that? And so and they just didn't get it. They're like, well, it's a great job and they pay so much money. I was like, but you realize that, like, it's not safe for me to be there. And so, you know, and, and that's why when you talk to black friends, they're like, you know, like, that's why there's a you know, a great community of successful young black folks in Atlanta, because it's not the economic opportunity, it's the culture and, and the safety of it. And so anyway, while, while we get a chance to talk to uh, what I presume to be predominantly white women listening, we have to think about this stuff every day, perhaps, but at least every time we're faced with a large decision. The fact that you don't get to think about, you don't have to consider comfort foods, access to cultural anchors, things that you want to teach your kids, uh, proxy to grandparents who want to live in certain cultural anchored cities still. All these things we have to consider and we can't just go to, you know, I don't know, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which in my mind is pretty much the whitest place in America. So those are things that we have to reckon with. And, and we don't share this with you, right? Because why would we? But whether you're Asian, whether you're Black or you're, you know, Hispanic in this country, these are things that we have to consider. And more than ever before, actual physical safety? And where do we go to minimize the chances of us getting either physically or verbally attacked or so sadly and so unfortunately a part of that decision-making tree for so many families uh, you know, now and I would argue for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Misasha, it reminds me of the story of your road trip after school. Oh yeah, my 2L summer between second and third year of law school to Asian girlfriends and I drove from New York to LA, you know, like you do in your mid twenties and you that's crazy are just like, let's go see the world or like America. Cause I had like never been to the South and my mom's family is from the South. So we're like driving through Tennessee, you know, just in our foreign car, right. The three of us it's during SARS, by the way. So this is the context of this. And we drive into this tiny town where my white grandfather was from, we get out in the town square. We're like, okay, we're A, we're the only ones not in pickup trucks. B, we are definitely the entire diversity in this town and C, no one cough, no one sneeze because everyone is going to look at us and be like, oh shit, like this is SARS like right here. And so we were highly, highly aware of that fact, how we looked, 
how we moved, how we talked in those towns. And, you know, your story about business school, it reminded me of law school and graduation. And, and when people would ask, where are you going? If you were not white, you were going to big cities, which already had populations. And like all of my black lost Columbia friends were going to like DC or to Atlanta or to big cities like New York, maybe. And if you were Asian, we were heading towards sort of back to California. A lot of us were from California. We were heading back to California. We were staying in big cities though, and in cities where we knew we could be comfortable and be close to family and have all those considerations. For me, I needed a Japanese food store within a certain, you know, like radius. And that's always been part of my calculus. I know that you've been talking to a lot of companies and what I'm curious to, as to what you would say, what do you say to white managers in those companies who are dealing with people who report to them who are not white? What do you tell them? What advice do you give them? I think it's hard. And I don't want to generalize because there are, you know, just like we don't want to be monolith and generalize as all Asians are the same. I do want to be very intentional in saying that I don't want to bucket all white people either. What I have a problem is with white supremacy. And in general, there's a correlation between the privileges that white people in this country in America benefit from. And so it's not a hundred percent correlation or even causation, but when you know that, then I think it goes to my next, which is you have to understand that you have certain privileges that we don't. And if you want to help us, there's a very specific nuanced difference here that you have to speak up for us and not speak for us. And I think particularly in business, we are so well-trained and compensated for fixing problems that when we hear a problem, we go into problem fixing mode. You want to do stuff for people because it feels good too. This is why people say they want to pray for you because it makes them feel good, right? If, you know, if it's, what does that mean for the other person? I don't know. I think it's making space. I think it's you know, empathy, I think it's humility. It's just admitting that I don't have no idea what to say to you, but I just want you to know that I'm here, like asking, how do you want to be supported right now? Do you want to take the day off? Do you want me to send you some food? Do you want me to like block your calendar with fake things so that you can go hang out and cry? Like use your privilege, use your power. The last thing that you want to do is to assume anything that just because they're not being vocal, that they're okay. The last thing you want to do is to say like, oh, well, my other Asian friend says they're fine. You know, you have no idea. And I think it's that humility. And I think really, really understanding, and this is tough, so I don't expect anybody to do this, but like, you know, how many middle managers actually, you know, put their neck out to keep their people safe with their organizations and push back when leadership, you know, demands certain things? I don't know very many, and I don't blame them either because everybody's trying to survive and I don't know what your financial situation is, but if you have privilege, if you have access, if you have power, think about how you're using that so that we can all have the same privilege as you do. Because I think, you know, there's a lot of ways to define the things that we talk about in the general broad bucket of diversity, equity, equity, inclusion, belonging, justice, all the letters that people want to make popular. But really it is what can we do to make the least privileged person in the room feel as safe and as confident as the most privileged person in the room? And so if you skew more towards more privilege, you have to use that for the benefit of the other person in the room. And speaking for that person isn't going to do it. And really, and I know a lot of people just may, might be listening and have no idea. And maybe I'm the first Asian person you listen to. That's okay. Everybody's on a different part of their journey. And don't take everything I say as the Asian Bible either. Because I mean, I just speak for myself. I don't speak for all of Asian America. I just speak up for my people because I understand the privilege that I have. But ask, because think about a time where you were asked genuinely by somebody about you, your family, 
or anything. That's true empathy. That's really just caring about somebody else, you know, outside of the context of the professional relationship, just as two fellow human beings. And I think that's where it go. That's where it has to go, you know, not to use a, you know, I guess a violent analogy, but like to truly bring empathy and understanding in the world, it's going to take hand-to-hand combat. It's going to take two human beings getting in a room and talking about this. It's the broadcasting of conversations like this where, you know, people, I don't know, depending on where you're listening, depending on what part of America or the world you live in, maybe the Asians that live in your community don't look and sound like me, right? And so, you know, how are we going to do this? And how are we going to have these conversations? And, and that's why I'm so gung-ho on storytelling as my tool to change the world. Because how do you not resonate? It is really hard to imagine that when you actually open your heart and listen to some of these people's stories and what they went through to get here, how do you not celebrate that, right? Like, you know, not everybody that achieves employment at company X started from the same starting line. But do you really understand what that means? We're still young enough or old enough to have personal friends who are actual refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, and other places. They won't talk about it because it hurts. But do you actually know what they went through? I don't either. And I do this for a living and I don't either. I don't know what traumas and pains they won't freely share. So if you see them winning awards, if you see them thriving, if you see them celebrating, could you do that if you started where they were? I don't think I can. I do what my grandparents did. Are you kidding me? Right? To do what my parents did, which is, I don't know, around my age, pick up my kids and go to a damn new country where they hate you and you don't understand their language and somehow you're supposed to make it work. I'm too chicken. I can't do it. We've thought about it. We're like, where do we go? Like, <laughs> you know, it almost as if America is like the, you know, not the best option, but like the best bad option right now. Cause it's like, okay, let's say we were like, or I guess, you know, why would you want to be a two time immigrant? That's a really, shitty experience to opt into. But, you know, all these things, and I just want to, you know, ask for folks who are listening to really think about what that means for you and what you can do. And so, you know, I don't know what the age demographic of the folks that might be listening are, but it could also be going out of your way to make your kids' friends at school feel safe and feel taken care of, right? It is also buying books and educational resources to put on your own kids' bookshelves. Count the number of talking animals that are on your bookshelf versus people of color. I will bet you there are probably five times as more animals. Think about what that means for not only your kid, but their friends. And sort of the, you know, the nuance is almost the subconscious learning that we do. And so, you know, this is, and look, I don't, you know, I went to business school, I, I did the right things. And now this is my job, right? Like talking about being an Asian American, which I always joke. I don't know if my parents quite understand what I do and how I make my money, but I don't ask them for money and the grandkids seem very happy and well taken care of. So I don't think they ask any questions. However, I don't think any immigrant parent really understands that our story is valuable, right? Because we are always trying to assimilate, that we're always trying to attain adjacency and always, and always seeking out acceptance. And so, you know, and there's a part where we don't have to do any of that right? That we can be proud of not just me being Korean, because I am, but also this newborn identity, which actually has its roots in political activism, called being an Asian American, and also have that be not only fulfilling from a human perspective, but also have that actually be a very profitable business that can create generational legacies for our family. And so like, that's sort of why I do what I do. You know, it's not easy. But I guess to wrap the question, like, if you're a white manager, if you're a white friend, if you're a white parent, think about what, admit what you don't know, learn on your own, 
and ask very humble questions. Don't ask people to teach you things, but also use your privilege to make space for people and to create opportunities for them to thrive because you don't need every opportunity. You really don't. And you'll be fine. Statistically speaking, you will be fine. If you're listening to this podcast, consider how privileged you are. You got a fancy smartphone. You have the time and the luxury to listen to optional opt-in conversations. You're not working three or four jobs, right? So, and then also recognize that, you know, we also share in a lot of the privilege, right? And, and so this is why we get to do this and to share this conversation. But it is those with privilege who must also, who have to use that for the betterment of other people. I appreciate that. I mean, I hear things like check your books, check your own assumptions. Don't look at an Asian person and assume they don't speak the language because you wouldn't do that for a second generation white person, right? Like make sure you're not making assumptions about the Asian presenting people at work about whether they are capable of taking on more or their loyalty. Like it's really about getting to know each individual's story and honoring their history and understanding where they are as a person and how you can meet their needs. And also being aware that these whole group dynamics don't aren't really relevant because there's a huge, huge range within the Asian population of everything. So just to get to know people's stories. I love it. I appreciate that. Where can our audience find you, Jerry? Well, if you're going to write me nasty emails, please don't find me. Have you gotten any? Come on, really? So I get the racist trolls on LinkedIn, which is very, very odd that you'd be like openly racist on a professional platform. That is odd. I actually had one this week that I'm pretty, I don't know who it was that I blocked, but they made up a whole goddamn new profile to come at me. And I was like, this is like premeditated racism. Like you went through work to create a new email address and a new fake profile. <laughs> and then to get to try to come at me in my comments, because I just blocked you again. So you're like, you waste a lot of effort. But you know, the criticism actually comes from inside. So I also recognize my privilege that I am a confident sounding big ass Asian dude. People don't come at me as often as they do some of my female friends who do the same work and say the same things. They also get misogynistic comments about, you know, being hit on and all these, you know, weird sexual things that I don't get. And so I understand that. Where I get shit sometimes is from our own people who say that I'm not doing enough, who like to call me out instead of call me in, like leaving weird comments on my Instagram instead of you actually have my phone number so you can call me and we can talk like adults. But why do you feel the need to feel validated by like yelling in a, in a large space? I don't know. And so, yeah, you know, I think that's what annoys me more. And I need to constantly remind myself that people who know me personally, there's a difference between people who know me personally, whether we went to school together or work together or friends versus the people who know me just as a voice and just as a brand. Sometimes when criticisms or feedback is levied against the brand and I take it personally, then that doesn't end well. And so, you know, so yeah, I don't really get a lot of, I am very careful in what I say, even though I try to be as authentically as, authentically as possible when I speak, but no, it's weird. But I also don't, you know, I have changed my, like I haven't gone to any of the rallies or any of the protests physically in person, more so because of COVID, but also because of who knows, you know, what could happen. You know, I don't know. But I also believe in the fact that if you're not pissing somebody off, you're not pushing the envelope hard enough. And so, you know, it is weird. But anyway, to find me, I'm easy to Google. I, I learned that Googling Jerry Wan will get you to all the places where I do and don't want to be found. I'm generally on LinkedIn quite a bit. My podcast, my main podcast is Dear Asian Americans. Uh, you can visit theareasianamericans.com to learn more. From there, you can also jump onto some of the other shows that we have. Uh, we have a parenting show. We have a show for and by Asian American or Korean American adoptees. 
and you know, we're doing some fun stuff. And I assume this will run in May and, and I'll share with folks who either want to content create or, you know, are just curious on what, you know, why I was once crazy enough to want to build this very specific Asian American storytelling company. You know, we're working with some, you know, pretty reputable brands and helping get their message out to the universe, specifically to the Asian American audience. And so, you know, we're working on a campaign with the Department of Health and Human Services for vaccine awareness and vaccine education, because again, with the Vana minority myth, not everybody is a goddamn doctor. And there are communities who don't have access, who don't have truthful information when it comes to the vaccine. So we need to get that out. And our Instagram account at the Asian Americans is the official content partner for the APAM campaign for a little hamburger company called McDonald's. And that blows my mind every time I say it because it's just bonkers, right? Like I, I didn't process it this way until yesterday, but isn't that like the most full circle Asian American dream? Because when we think about America, right? We think about McDonald's, right? We think about fast food and hamburgers and whether it is with pure intent or it's a marketing play, the fact that they're investing money into our community and a part of that is putting money into my business so I can continue to do what I do and take care of my family and to get our stories out there. We're, we're helping them amplify a series of photojournalism exhibits. There, we have photographers right now all across the country taking photos and sharing stories of unspoken or untold Asian American heroes. And so we get to amplify that story, which is really, really cool. And so I hope that you know people also understand that you know here we are technically you know two Japanese and one Korean Asian person you know talking about being Asian American in this country, and that's not our entire experience either. You know, so I would just continue to be open-minded, even. You know, we've been talking for a little while. So if you've made it to this part of the episode, thank you. Congratulations. You don't earn your Asian American merit badge yet, but you're well on your way. And so, but this is what it's going to take. Um, and I'd be happy to have more conversations, you know, when, when, when we do sort of these sessions or conversations with larger organizations, we obviously want to be there for the Asian American uh, employees, but we have a tremendous amount of ally support, you know, not just white folks, brown folks, black folks, everybody. And you know, I try not to judge. I try not to get mad at, at why they're where they are in life. I'm just grateful that they're joining the jump, you know, the party now. There, there is no jumping on the bandwagon. There is no bandwagon. We need everybody. We need as many people to, to jump on, you know, our side and then to join us in understanding that really what's good for Asian Americans is good for America and is good for humanity. Thanks for that. I have one last question. As you have been doing more of this work, amplifying Asian stories, right? In the past, we've been said that, you know, Asian people haven't spoken up. We haven't shared our stories. We've all said this in our personal lives. It's sort of part of the culture. Put your head down and get the work done. But now with this rise of COVID-inspired hate, you know, more people are speaking. What has been, like, how has the response been for the Asian people you're giving the mic to? And what have been, like, some of the most surprising results or things you've discovered as a result of having this kind of platform? I mean, what I think we have been loud. I just don't think people have been listening, to be honest with you. If you look at the historians, if you look at, you know, non-popular media professors and people have been loud, the nonprofit organizations, I think, have been at their work for a very, very long time. The difference, I think, is that we're finally being heard. Again, whether it is out of pressure, some sort of, you know, awakenment or guilt even, we'll take it because I'm here to get our time to talk, not to judge why I get to talk. But, you know, it's the most, the biggest lesson. And I knew this, I know this lesson because we all know this lesson, but it is that I don't want to be the guy. I want to be the guy that inspires a hundred, a thousand other folks, right? But when I do it, again, 
knowing what my resume is because it doesn't make sense to people, right? So the question that I think people ask when they look at me is, why would a dude with an MBA from Michigan who then went into consulting and went for a WeWork, screw it, and is he's doing what now? Like my classmates are confused as hell. Some will probably never get it. My own friends are confused. They say well-meaning offensive stuff like, oh my God, I can't believe you actually did it. Like, what does that mean? And you have supported me and you know, you have not put $1 in my pocket, so screw you. But it's that notion that when I get emails and direct messages from people who listen to the show, people who read my stuff on LinkedIn or see me speak at a corporate or school event, they say, this is the first time I've seen an Asian American person speak like that and to say the things that I've always felt. So I see, I feel seen and heard, and I feel empowered to go speak up for myself. That's the goal. That's the dream. And I'll wrap it with this. Everything I do, and I get a lot of, you know, I'm not trying to boost my own ego. It's objectively very rewarding to do this work because I get a lot of thank yous. But this work is extremely selfish. Doing it for my kids because I don't want my kids and your kids to have to sit on a goddamn podcast 30 years from now to have the same effing conversation. And it's going to take really, and I'm being blunt here, two Harvard-educated women and a dude with a microphone to use our privilege to confuse people because we have decided that even with all the privilege that we've attained, that we still want to fight for the people who don't have that. And that is a very powerful message in and of itself because we were all told ever since we were children that keep your head down, get yours, and stay silent. And so it makes sense from that logic that a lot of the social justice activists and the nonprofit people are assumed to be doing that work because they cannot attain traditional metrics of success. And so when you see lawyers who go to Yale Law School and then doing nonprofit work, it should confuse people because it's not supposed to make sense. And again, I have chosen to do this work full time because it is also rewarding for me full time. But I want folks who may not be ready to make that jump to infuse the advocacy and the activism into everything that you do, because everything that we do collectively, professionally, does have an impact on the way that you can make somebody feel physically, emotionally, and mentally. And so I know a lot of people say like, well, I'm just an accountant somewhere, or I'm just a whatever somewhere. You have more agency than you realize. You have more power and influence than you realize. And so that's, I know that going in, that when you the most powerful thing that you can tell somebody is that their story matters. And that's what I tell people every day. So I know the impact. The scale of it is becoming a little bit difficult to process. Even this is why you do it. And I try to keep myself humble. My wife does a very good job of keeping me humble. And it is that every thank you is a personal thank you. And that you should never let it get to your head. And I respond to every message that I get as long as they're, you know, they're not spammy messages and try to build relationships. And so, you know, we're just getting started. You know, somebody thought that I should write a book. So we're working on that. Hopefully, you know, if there are folks who are listening who work at advertising agencies or brands like, you know, McDonald's gave me money, so you should too. Let's talk. Because, you know, I think people need to support. When you say you want to support the Asian American community, it's not writing a check to a nonprofit that you can put on a press release. It's supporting the entrepreneurs. It's supporting the people who support the community too. I have no shame or no, you know, problem telling people that I am an Asian American business whose mission is to amplify more Asian American voices. And if we don't have a place to live, and if my kids don't go to school, and if we don't feel safe, it doesn't work. And why should we shy away 
from being successful, amplifying and uplifting a community. There shouldn't be any guilt in that. And so anyway, that's as like as boldly as I got asking people to help me. But again, if you made it to this far into the episode and you're a privileged white woman, share the love. Now I'm going to get some angry emails. I love it. I love the boldness. <laughs> I do too. I love that it fundamentally comes back to kids, right? And the why. I think there's nothing more pure than that. And I sure as hell don't want my kids sitting here on a podcast with your kids and our kids, you know, 30 years from now, having these same conversations, thinking that it would be better. Then we failed, right? And then we failed or the world's gotten got so much worse, but we have to make it better for them. And it's, you know, I think when we talk about legacy, especially in the Asian American sense, it's purely financial legacy that you want to leave enough money behind so that they're comfortable. But I want to reframe that thinking to leaving a system and an environment in which the money can actually be a tool to even do more work. And so, you know, anyway. No, I appreciate that. It was something you had said in some other thing, but it's something that Misash and I've talked about. It's like, nobody asks where you went to school or how much money you have before they kick you down, push you over because of how you look. Like none of that matters if we don't create the environment first of safety and respect for each other as human beings. So that is where we must lead. And I think that's where all of us have lent our time, energy, money, and hearts to this work. And so I really, really appreciate you sharing that last bit of bold asking for support too, because I think it is true. It is needed. And we shouldn't be apologetic about asking for people's support because it is part of changing the culture and voting with our wallets too. Yep. And vote with your feet. If your company treats you like shit, leave. If they treat other people like shit, leave. You know, people suffer. And look, I I understand, again, very empathetic because I've been there of needing money to survive and pay a rent and, you know, take care of your family. But if they're paying you $100, they're actually making like four or $500 on your labor. Even if you're a cost center, they're getting that much value out of you. So realize that you're actually more valuable than what they're paying you and go somewhere else to take that money from. I know we also obsess how we spend money to support the causes, but we also have to be equally intentional about how we make money and from whom we make money and where that money is generated from. So I hope I got enough people confused and thinking for a while. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces. 